0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Rock and Roll, Episode 2, That Old Time Rock and Roll. If you're hearing this, you've decided this podcast was worth your time, or maybe you just started on this episode. But regardless, I'm glad you're here. Last time, we covered rock and roll's origins from 1900 up until about 1949 with the introduction of Billboard's Rhythm and Blues Chart, and the increased exposure of authentic black music to white audiences. As you'll see, black music still has a little ways to go, but it was finally starting to earn respect in the industry and captivate the attention of white listeners. Today's episode will focus on the onslaught of rhythm and blues against the traditional music industry, a movement that would gain speed throughout the 50s until eventually succeeding under the name rock and roll. You may recall that blues and hillbilly music were initially popular only in rural areas of America, being relatively unknown to city folk until the acquisition of radios and the programming of shows like the Grand Ole Opry. These genres then became novelties to be admired from a distance and were still largely inaccessible even after John Hammond's valiant attempt at breaking down racial barriers with his From Spirituals to Swing concerts. In essence, blues and hillbilly styles developed behind the scenes during the jazz age and the era of Tin Pan Alley, never dwindling in the rural popularity, but always kept out of the mainstream. Hillbilly music had come far in the many years since its genesis, circa 1920. Key figures in the 30s included Jimmy Rogers, known for his yodeling, Ernest Tubb, and Bob Wills. Bob Wills was one of those few white folks who fancied black jazz orchestras, especially our friend Count Bassey, and actually began to incorporate horn sections and fiddle solos into his band, creating a style he dubbed Western Swing, a sort of hillbilly jazz blend. Western Swing, while still not achieving mainstream success, really got people in Texas and Oklahoma up and moving Other states similarly had popular regional genres that developed outside of the mainstream market. Hillbilly music in general had slowly come to be known as country music, and I will use this term to describe it from here on out. The 1940s saw Tin Pan Alley write some faux folk songs to capture the growing national country market, and these songs were essentially the only ones that you'd be able to hear on larger radio stations. Local country singer-songwriters like Woody Guthrie were kept to the background. The reason I'm explaining all this is because these regional styles and underground artists would become the untapped goldmine of the rhythm and blues era. Up until the end of World War II, three major record labels published nearly all commercially available music, at least any music of popular significance. These three companies were RCA, DECA, and Columbia. The Big Three vied for dominance of Billboard's pop chart, only really having each other to compete with. After World War II passed, ordinary people who liked music and or wanted money decided to found independent labels and see if they'd have any luck. Often an indie label was just one person with a dream and a lot of motivation. In order to compete with the big conglomerates, an indie label had to be smart. It had to look where no one else was looking find niches that weren't yet capitalized on. In some cases, this meant international music, like Polish or Latin styles. But in many cases, these new indie labels started looking at country and rhythm and blues. As the saying goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure, and the indie label managers must have been pleased with the music they heard from the musicians the big three had kicked to the curb. Indie labels would set up a studio in a smaller market, say, Memphis, and attempt to capture the local market using local artists, the same ones that the big three had turned away at the door. By appealing to audiences that were deemed insignificant to the larger labels, indie labels had only each other to compete with and quickly came to dominate the country and R&B markets that the big three were ignoring. So why were the big labels ignoring these genres? Couldn't they see the potential? Frankly, no. Decca, Columbia, and RCA were concerned with other matters. They had bigger fish to fry. DECA and Columbia were caught up in a race to create new vinyl record formats that could hold more songs. And they really couldn't be bothered to record artists that weren't sure things. They weren't in the business of recording artists that didn't sound similar to what was currently making waves on the pop chart. Kind of like how nowadays, every movie you see is an attempt to capitalize on a previous success. You find a formula, and you stick to it. If every time you release a superhero movie, you get millions of dollars, then why make a movie about anything else? They had no reason to deviate. They knew what the public wanted to hear, and they delivered. Even if styles like Western Swing were popular in one state, the big three were competing for national success. It just wasn't worth their time. Luckily for indie labels, this mentality left fringe artists, or those who were successful only on a regional level, up for grabs, and indie labels were more than happy to give these local talents their lucky break. How heartwarming to imagine the small-time musicians who were suddenly given the chance to have their music shared to the world after having been ignored for so long. How kind the indie label manager must be to put money aside and take chance on a young, blossoming artist, never once conceiving of abusing their position of power. Unfortunately, money, as always, was the objective, and soon enough, these kind, generous indie label managers found ways to wring out as much as they could. Since 1909, when copyright law was enacted to protect written materials, often the primary way of making money from a song was to publish it and copyright it. That way, if someone else picked up your song and took it to the top of the charts, you'd get a nice fat cut. And this was a likely occurrence. Almost no one at this time wrote their own songs, meaning they would either have a song written for them, see Tin Pan Alley, or simply cover a song that was already a hit. Can't really go wrong with that. Any major artist was likely to have their own version of any hit song, meaning there might be three or four different versions of a hit song on the charts at the same time. This also meant that if you were out at the club and put your dollar in the jukebox, you could listen to White Christmas as many times as you wanted and never get bored. So, basically, copywriting your song was really important, especially for indie labels. Their best shot might be to hope that someone like Bing Crosby would hear the song, take fancy to it, cover it, and bring it to the top of the chart. Well, that all seems well and good, Record labels were less than generous in their position as the only party with the resources to publish and copyright a song. They would say, let's get that song published for you, and then stick their name on the songwriting credit as well. Or maybe their wife or girlfriend's name, cause you know, they're not that selfish. Royalties, the money artists earn when their songs are played, are split equally between composers meaning this tactic took at least half of the royalty check away from the actual songwriter. This sneaky trick would also be used to help promote records. If you split the royalties with a DJ, they'd have a good reason to play the record on their station. So, yeah, indie labels had their methods, and for better or worse, they worked. Indie labels were starting to take off, with some like King and Atlantic even being able to compete on a national level. Much of this success came from the rhythm and blues records, showing that the genre was widely being listened to. Indie artists were all over the R&B chart. Were the big labels paying attention? Don't you want to come in and ruin it all? Well, they just didn't want anything to do with that obscene, foul-mouthed R&B crap. They said, fine, let them have their fun, it'll be over soon anyway. But it was not over soon. It was just getting started. Their conservative mindset let the biggest genre of the decade slip through their fingers. In fact, RCA had actually let future rock and roll legend Little Richard go after a brief tryout. They really couldn't see what was coming. The best they could muster was an admittedly talented singer, really more in the vein of pop than R&B, named Johnny Ray. Ray was, well, white for one, but also sweet, clean, and sophisticated enough for the ears of Columbia's execs. And apparently he was sweet and clean enough for the general public as well. Ray's first hit, Cry, went to number one on the pop charts for an incredible 11 weeks, competing only with its own B-side, The Little White Cloud That Cried. Quick side note, for those of you who don't know, A B-side was the flip side of a single, literally the other side of the vinyl record. Singles would always be released with two sides, the A-side being the intended hit and the B-side being more or less a filler track. However, sometimes the B-side would actually make the charts, such as the case with Johnny Ray. Ray was an emotionally powerful singer Dubbed Mr. Emotion for the time singing about crying wasn't enough, and he actually broke down crying on stage. And he should be respected in his own right. But for our purposes, his success was significant mainly as an indicator of the big three record labels' attempt to maintain the status quo, to keep their hands and the music clean. This left the raw, authentic R&B in the hands of the many independent labels starting up across the nation. So what kind of music were the indie labels recording? What was climbing the R&B charts? What was this music that the big three were so afraid of? Ironically, one of the first forms of R&B to reach national attention was perhaps the calmest, sweetest, least offensive music to be listened to by youth until... Well, it's really only gotten more explicit since then. Now, I know I said that R&B was faster, stronger, better, whatever, than anything before it, but there was a softer side to R&B that began in the late 40s, a subgenre called doo-wop. Doo-wop was very popular among black youth, especially on the East Coast, likely owing to the fact that it didn't require one to possess instruments. Doo-wop was sung a cappella, and thus was more accessible than the other form of rhythm and blues that featured stomping pianos, saxophones, and electric guitars. Those were expensive. Duop songs were typically romantic ballads, which had particular appeal among youth who felt they could identify their sexual desires in the songs. Pretty scary stuff. Duop came partly out of the gospel tradition, from which it took its signature call-and-response style, a technique popularized by the Ravens, one of the 1st duop groups to enjoy live and chart success. The Ravens were more or less a template for what doo-wop groups would look like going forward. Four or five guys, one of whom would sing lead, while the others provided backing vocals in harmony. Kind of like a barbershop quartet. The one way the Ravens deviated slightly from the standard doo-wop lineup was by having their bass singer, Ricky Ricks, sing lead, rather than using their tenor singer, as was usual. The Ravens were all over the R&B chart in the late 40s and early 50s, but like all black groups before them, they were never able to crack the white gates of the pop chart. Now, I had trouble finding out what the first R&B record was to actually make the pop charts, but what is clear is that the Orioles, a doo-wop group following in the footsteps of the Ravens, were one of the first to achieve that feat with their song, It's Too Soon to Know a record that reached 13 on the pop charts and number one on the R&B chart. The Orioles were quite similar to the Ravens and not just because they liked birds. However, the Orioles notably departed from their contemporaries in one important aspect. Their backing vocals were hummed instead of sung, a trend that would catch on quick by the doo-wop groups that followed in their footsteps, many of whom were also fond of birds. The Five Keys who hated birds enough to exclude them from their name, added jazz harmonies to the mix, and frightened music industry sticklers by being just a little bit less polite than their neighbors. And then came Clyde McFadder, tenor singer for Billy Ward and his Dominoes, who really gave traditionalists something to talk about. McFadder took the Dominoes' Have Mercy Baby to the top of the R&B charts in '52. And showcased a radical new style that mixed the passion of gospel singing with a vocal that strongly evoked sexual desire. Other doo groups followed suit, with the five royals even using sexually suggestive movements on stage to get a rise out of their audience. Suddenly, even the soft side of R&B was becoming a real threat to the prudish values of white society. Fortunately for them, the white upper class had just the right tool for dealing with these threats, censorship. If a song got too out of line, they could take it off the air entirely, an occurrence that had become commonplace for r and numbers, hence the need for entendres. Clyde McFadder had experienced this when his almost hit Such A Night with the Drifters was banned. Even poster boy Johnny Ray had gone a step too far. With his cover of the same song. Things were starting to get out of hand. Meanwhile, the real risqué rhythm and blues was coming off the chain entirely, championed by artists like Fats Domino, Jackie Brenston, and Muddy Waters, who brought the harder, faster, stronger, more electric sounds that are more resemblant of the soon-to-be-birthed rock and roll. These artists were among the background musicians that were brought into the spotlight by indie labels in search of hidden gold. In 1947, black piano singer Fats Domino had been discovered in New Orleans by Lou Chud, founder of indie label Imperial Records, and he quickly gained fame with songs like The Fat Man, showcasing his signature piano triplets, a technique he had actually taken from an obscure pianist who ended up as an anecdote. Muddy Waters, a black blues singer who played electric guitar, similarly found success in the late 40s with Chicago-based indie label Chess after years of performing in local Chicago bars. Atlantic Records struck gold with Ray Charles, a blind and exceptionally talented singer-pianist whose style combined elements of blues, jazz, and gospel, a fusion that laid the groundwork for soul. Atlantic also got their hands on Big Joe Turner, the man who had been crucial in the development and popularization of Boogie Woogie, which he had the opportunity to showcase during From Spirituals to Swing, and had stuck around to help see the genre through to rhythm and blues and even rock and roll. Louis Jordan, R&B's other early champion, had actually left major label Decca for indie label Aladdin. As I mentioned before, Having a popular artist cover your indie song and take it up the charts was often the best an indie artist could hope for. However, if your song were to actually do well, then a cover could be bad news. It could overrise your original and keep it from reaching its full potential. Sadly, as Rhythm & Blues hits finally began to appear on the pop charts, these kinds of covers became all too common and often overshadowed indie success. Every time a song would get close to the summit, something would rush by and shove it out of the way. What was that? Well, a white artist, of course. When labels saw a song by a black artist doing well, they would simply rush to cover it with a white group, which had a broader national appeal. They would simplify it, sanitize it, and send it out to overtake the original. This happened frustratingly often. In 1954, Then 43-year-old Big Joe Turner released a particularly exciting and risque number called Shake, Rattle, and Roll, which brought him into the public consciousness more than ever before. While Turner's version did quite well on the charts, it was no match for its white counterpoint. Decca had begun dipping its toes in the water of R&B with Bill Haley, a white singer-guitarist who had made waves two years earlier with Rock This Joint, an admittedly impressive addition to the rock and roll canon that Haley described as his attempt at updating Western Swing. When Bill Haley and his comments covered Shake, Rattle, and Roll, they inevitably held greater appeal to the national audience, omitting some of Turner's more dangerous lyrics and simplifying the beat. While this surely was frustrating for Turner, and the many others who faced similar competition, it at least hopefully exposed more white listeners to r some of whom may have sought out the original. Later that same year, things got a little shadier. A black group called The Chords released the hit of the summer, a doo-wop number called Shaboom. But the success wouldn't be all theirs. The Crew Cuts, a neighboring white group, quickly released a practically identical copy that of course reached number one, although the chords version remained ahead in radio and jukebox play. This was a particularly aggressive step by competing labels. Never before had a group been made to copy the arrangement, vocal, and instrumental parts to a T. Imagine that. They knew they couldn't do it better, but they also knew that people were more likely to buy the white version. Fact was, the DJs were more likely to play a white cover, and record stores were more likely to carry one. While the crew cuts were also under an indie label, Mercury, they set a dangerous precedent for major labels to follow, who had the resources to carry out similar operations. In 1955, Laverne Baker's tweedle was covered using the exact same musicians and arranger. Mercury, who I guess got off on this kind of thing, even reached out to request the same engineer, a request which was denied. While artists still got royalties from these covers, the fact was that white covers were preventing black indie songs from reaching their full potential, ultimately costing them far more than the copyright royalties they were afforded they were simply blocked from reaching the top. Imagine a movie like Moonlight being remade shot for shot, but with white actors and then that version outselling the original. It's just a little absurd. I will mention that sometimes black r and groups took the opportunity to piggyback on white hit records. In 1953, years since their last hit, the Orioles released Crying in the Chapel A cover of white country artist Daryl Glenn, who notably had previously worked with Western swing inventor Bob Wills. The Orioles version flew all the way up to number 11 on the pop chart, competing with three other versions, including Glenn's original. But the difference here is the Orioles version was unique, and it wasn't gonna cost Glenn anything. At some point, much to the chagrin of white society, it must have become clear that white folks were actually buying the authentic black records. How else could they be doing so well? And it wasn't just any old white folks. The consumer base for R&B was largely made up of teenagers. The term teenager was new. It had come into being at about the same time that young Americans realized they made up a large enough group to have their spending habits actually influence the products available to them. The market simultaneously realized this and promptly abused them. When news came out that smoking cigarettes was actually not good for you, imagine their surprise, tobacco companies simply redirected their advertising efforts at the new, less informed, teenager consumer base, causing a great upsurge in smoking at a time when the opposite should have occurred. Teenagers quickly became a desirable and sizable percentage of many consumer bases, including that of the music industry, and when record stores began to see a lot of white teens coming in to purchase R&B records, it was a sign that the industry simply couldn't ignore. Record companies, radio stations, and DJs were quickly whipped into a frenzy by this new information and scrambled to capitalize on it. The response by record label managers was to create new labels that targeted the new teenage demographic. This is how cat records came to be. Cat was a relatively new term that generally referred to poor white teenagers who grew up in poor, mostly black neighborhoods, then known as slums. Surely those must be the only whites that would stoop so low. Sadly, while white and black teens were now enjoying the same music, this didn't mean they got along, and many white teens were still happy to be segregated from their black neighbors in school, movie theaters, and anywhere else they could get away from them. As for radio, r and had already begun appearing on many small-scale stations, but had mostly been limited to foreign language stations. It's now that I will introduce Alan Freed, one of the figures most commonly associated with the birth of rock and roll. Freed, who nicknamed himself the Moondog, was a DJ based in Akron, Ohio. The Moondog was a bit of a loose cannon, often stepping on the toes of management, once being briefly fired, and eventually walking out on his contract after being refused a raise, resulting in an injunction prohibiting him from operating within 75 miles of Akron. It's a bit unclear but somehow an RCA exec was able to get Freed released from the non-compete clause, and so the moon Dog moved to nearby Cleveland, the same city that had first identified the trend of teenagers buying R&B records. One day, a major Cleveland record store owner by the name of Leo Mintz contacted Freed and suggested that he start a late-night show that played only black music, the kind his customers were eating up. Freed was unsure at first. After all, it had long been taboo to play black music on a white radio station, but eventually he was convinced when Mintz offered to advertise the show at his shop. The show, billed as The Moondog House, began broadcasting on July 11, 1951, and quickly became a success among, well, who else would be up that late? Teenagers loved Freed. For them, the Moondog House was like a secret society, a welcoming community they could tune into after lights out to hear the deep forbidden music they'd been longing for. The tendency of broadcasting more offensive niche records at unpopular times of day dated back decades, when blues and country would be broadcast late at night or early in the morning to protect the ears of those with regular sleeping schedules. In the 50s, the DJs who played niche records at nighttime dubbed this community of teenage listeners the late people, further solidifying the sense of community felt by these outcasts. Freed's Moondog House was likely the first major radio station to regularly feature R&B records, an active attempt to capture that market. Furthermore, Freed stood out among those DJs who did play R&B records by choosing the original, authentic records, rather than waiting for the white covers to arrive. As the Moondog's following grew, he began exposing more and more white youth to authentic black rhythm and blues. Freed's show could not have come at a better time. Popular music was lacking when it could offer teenagers. You could listen to that old sentimental crap your parents listened to, or jazz, which was almost impossible to follow, and certainly impossible to dance to, or country music, which wasn't exactly the vibe that most urban youth were going for. Freed gave the late people an escape from the mundane commercial pop they heard throughout the day. He gave them something they could dance to. By 1951, it was learned that 30 to 60% of r and in Hollywood were white. By the end of 52, R&B records were selling in large quantities to white consumers in Southern California, a fact that was attributed to both radio stations and jukeboxes, which were slowly creeping into any place that youth typically gathered. In 53, Billboard reported that 25% of all radio stations played R&B records, averaging 2.5 hours a week compared with pop at 31 hours and country At 11.5. The tide was turning. When Freed's show began picking up popularity, the Moondog realized that the only way to really profit from this, to get money into his own pockets and not just those who made the records he played, was to get his massive teenage audience and the artists they adored in a room together and stamp his name on it. A live show. The resulting moondog coronation ball was held in cleveland on march 21, 1952 featuring the dominoes among others and witnessed by a crowd larger than perhaps even freed expected 25,000 youth both white and black made their way to the cleveland arena more than twice its capacity eventually leading police to stop the show in the eyes of the law rock and roll was getting off on the wrong foot For some of these teenage R&B fanatics, just listening to the music wasn't enough. Some wanted to try their hand at making it too. On the West Coast, two white Jewish 17-year-olds, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, bonded over a love of R&B and figured that they might be able to come up with some original songs in the R&B tradition too. They were absolutely correct and soon proved to have an ability to write songs nearly indistinguishable from those written by black artists. According to Stoller, this was in no way an intentional attempt to capitalize on the growing market, but rather an exercise they enjoyed doing for their own sake, that was inevitably influenced by the music they loved. Despite the general public's increased exposure to and desire for authentic rhythm and blues, largely thanks to the Moondog, whatever his intentions may have been, the cover bug had not quite been squashed yet. By March 1955, nearly half of the songs in the Billboard pop charts top 30 were R&B, an incredible feat. But unfortunately, many of those were R&B covers. The crew cuts had once again returned to feed off another black group, this time the Penguins surpassing their original Earth Angel with a white version. Albeit again, the authentic group came out on top with jukebox play, hinting at what version teenagers really wanted to hear. Regardless, the cover bug was consistently whitewashing rhythm and blues, and seriously threatened the success of indie labels and their artists. Unless some kind of legislation could be put in place, which was unlikely considering the affected parties did not hold any power... The only solution was to make songs that white artists couldn't possibly copy. In May of that same year, Muddy Waters brought in 28 year old Chuck Berry to meet with the Chess Brothers in Chicago. Berry, originally from St. Louis, was a black country and blues singer, guitarist and songwriter who had done three years prison time for armed robbery in the 40s and had been rejected by other indie labels like Capitol and Mercury an unlikely hero. Barry brought in his own rendition of a popular western swing number called Ida Red, previously recorded by the likes of Bob Wills, but this time with lyrics altered to center around a car chase. Chuck Berry loved car chases. The Chess Brothers liked the song, but they couldn't go ahead calling it Ida Red without losing the royalties entirely. Ida Red was in the public domain, and so it couldn't be copyrighted. Upon request, Barry quickly changed the title to an alternative three-syllable name, Maybelline. Maybelline did what no authentic R&B record before it could. It stayed in the Billboard's pop chart top 10 for weeks and couldn't be touched by a single cover version. About time. Unfortunately, Barry's success was not entirely his to enjoy the Chesses had taken the liberty of adding two names to the composer credits of the record, the first being our friend the Moondog, Alan Freed, and the second being an entirely irrelevant man named Russ Fratto, who the Chesses owed some money. You can imagine Chuck Berry's surprise when he discovered that two-thirds of his earnings would be going to men he had never even met. Now, it's entirely possible that Maybelline's extraordinary success is in part owed to Freed, who had massive influence and would certainly have been more inclined to promote a record that he collected royalties from. But in any case, Freed was aware of what music his audience liked and must have known it would be a hit. By this time, Freed's popularity had seen him hired to run a new show at a major New York City radio station, WINS broadcasting as late as 2 a.m. for all his late people to hear. The Moondog's bark could be heard all over the East Coast, and he was compensated a hefty 75000 a year for it, not including the royalties he was collecting from songs like Maybelline that he wrote. At the height of his powers, being the most prominent figure associated with the most exciting forms of R&B enjoyed by a growing teenage audience, Freed decided that the music he played deserved a new name, perhaps as a way of separating the old from the new. And there you have it, rock and roll. When Freed received an injunction preventing him from further using the name Moondog on his show, he quickly changed his program name to Rock and Roll Party, cementing the term in the ears of a generation. So there it is, rock and roll. Did he just make that up on the spot? Well, not quite. The term rock and roll had been used in many rhythm and blues songs by this time, often as a euphemism for sex. It had first been used by the industry to describe the nature of the music in June 1946, when Billboard published a review of Joe Liggins' song, Sugar Lump, calling it, quote, write rhythmic rock and roll music. Freed merely picked up on this and decided the shoe fit. Now, as I hope you realize, It's important for me to point out that rock and roll did not simply begin its existence the moment Freed changed the name of his radio show. It had always existed in some fashion, and Freed's decision was simply when the label came to be. According to some major R&B or rock and roll artists, rock and roll had existed since the 1940s, it just didn't reach mainstream popularity until about 1955. Fats Domino, in particular, maintained that the music of the late 50s was no different than the R&B he had been playing for 15 years. In fact, many of the first rock and roll hits of the mid to late 50s, particularly those by white artists like Jerry Lee Lewis and Bill Haley, were re-recordings of rhythm and blues hits, which owed their success to technological advancements and the fact that the public was now ready to hear that kind of music. I'm going to end this week's episode by introducing Sam Phillips, a name that may be familiar to you. Phillips was a DJ and radio engineer for a station in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, one of the smaller scale stations that was progressive enough to broadcast music by both black and white musicians. In 1950, Phillips had opened his own recording studio, converted out of a radiator repair shop, to record local blues musicians. Initially called Memphis Recording Service, the studio would later be known as Sun Studio. Memphis-based musicians were quick to utilize Phillips' services, including the likes of B.B. King, who would become a major blues icon of the decade. Phillips was a keen observer of rock and roll's growing success and had made his own contributions to the scene, but had largely been left out of the limelight as a small-time manager who had to work with other labels to get songs published. This was the case with Rocket 88, a song by Jackie Brenston that is often considered the first rock and roll record. Rocket 88 had been recorded at Sun Studio, but was published by Chess Records. In other words, Phillips was making good music, but he wasn't getting rich. To reap some of what he was sowing, Phillips formed his own label, Sun Records, which enjoyed a mid mid-size hit with Bearcat, a ridiculous cover of Hound Dog original of which was written by our friends Leiber and Stoller. But it wasn't enough. Phillips realized that what he really needed was someone who would appeal strongly to both white and black audiences. A white singer who sang like a black singer. In fact, Phillips had literally stated that he was searching for someone like this. Someone who could make him a billionaire. And then one day he walked in. Elvis Presley. Next week, we'll get into the rise of Elvis and the beginning of rock and roll's long stay at the top of the Billboard pop chart. I know this week's episode was rather long, and I apologize for that. Going forward, my hope is to keep each episode under 30 minutes and more focused on one specific topic, artist, or genre. Thanks for listening.